0: This is all an illusion Please pardon the confusion You made an ass
1: out of yourself and me for assuming The flow is moving
0: Hey, yo, 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 yo Welcome to the fifth episode of Two Writers Singing Yang My name is Jeff Perlman I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer Author of multiple New York Times bestsellers and a Bleacher Report contributor, the music you're listening to is Croissant Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting. And today's guest is one of my all-time favorite human beings and all-time favorite journalists, Russ Banks.ton is a senior editor of Complex Magazine, the former editor of Slam Magazine, a sneaker connoisseur, and for about two years, my New York City roommate. And a qu- super quick story about that. Russ used to own a snake, which didn't thrill me, but I was okay with it. And uh, one day, Russ was on the road for Slam. And I came home, and the apartment smelled like rotting egg. And I'm looking around and looking around. It's a really hot day in New York City. And I'm looking, I look in the fridge, I look under the fridge. And finally, I noticed the smells coming from the snake tank. And Russ's snake is... Smoke is actually coming off of the snake. It was so hot. He was dead and boiling. So we were basically grilling snake in our apartment. So thanks to Russ, I know what grilled snake smells like. Um, But it's awesome. I mean, just a delight for me to have him here on Two Riders Sling and Yang. So, Russ, the the first thing I want to say to you, and I discussed this in the intro, which you didn't hear, is I've felt very guilty for years because I feel like you think... In your absence, I intentionally killed your snake, and I did not. (laughs)
1: Um, I mean, look the the (laughs) the snake, the death of the snake, which was a a horrible, horrible (laughs) thing. um, I think it affected us all rather equally because the smell didn't leave the apartment for a while.
0: Yeah, it was was really bad. It was egg. It was egg. Yeah,
1: I I definitely don't think you would subject yourself to that on purpose. So. I'll admit, when you said about me being mad at you, I didn't quite know where that was going or what that would like. I'm like, wait a minute. Did you, like, raid my refrigerator in the middle of the night? (laughs) Because that was the weirdest apartment ever with two full kitchens in it. Do you remember
0: the name of the restaurant and the name of the landlord?
1: Why, the restaurant, the the landlord was Mr. Chin, correct?
0: Stan Chin.
1: Stanley Chin, (laughs) that's right. Um, The name of the restaurant escapes me. I'm actually curious if that's still
0: there. Yeah, me too. It was the Empire Walk.
1: Empire Walk, yes, 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 yes. Good time. Right downstairs. Where, where were we? Like seventy. No, 80? we were
0: eighty-second and second.
1: Eighty-second. eighty-second. Yeah. See, my my memory for details is horrible. Yes, yeah, so is mine. Of That's
0: course, right. is why I become a writer. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's working well for you. It's kind of funny, actually. <laughs> yeah. So we lived. I didn't really talk about this in the intro, but we lived in the weirdest apartment ever because it was two converted studios above a Chinese restaurant. So you would smell the Chinese food. We would have rats every now and then. Someone broke into our apartment. Do you remember that? Someone did break into our apartment, and apparently, I assume, came off the roof, because we were
1: on the top floor, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, like, broke in your window. And stole and your I
0: VCR. They... I think that's the only thing they took was your VCR.
1: It, w- it wasn't much. They definitely did not get much, and whatever they got is, like, did they take a bunch of CDs? I think they took a bunch of CDs, maybe, yeah. from my room. It's like a... It's a very classic burglary now because that stuff would never happen anymore
0: because oh, no one would steal that stuff. Right now, there's some guy in New York listening to Russ's Rick Springfield. <laughs> Rick Springfield, greatest hits he did. It's a little disappointing. Good Lord. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> well, um, Russ, first, thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Of course. Of course. And, um, I need to go back and listen to Howard Becks, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. curious about that one, too. Yeah, he was excellent. Um, and I was thinking I'm going to start in an untraditional place here, which is um, – so Russ and I, I – I didn't go into detail here – Russ and I both attended the University of Delaware, and um, we came out. We were both from from New York, and we roomed together uh, when Russ was relatively new at Slam, and I was new at Sports Illustrated. And I remember thinking at the time, and probably not expressing this to you, like, I remember looking at Slam, even though I did some freelance, and thinking, God, these guys are sets bullshit. And here's what I mean. (laughs) I remember, it like, because you guys, like, you would wear jerseys to games, and you'd wear baggy jeans to games, and you, like, you got to know the players on s- a m- much more of a personal level, and it's almost like, it would almost be like, I was this classically trained pianist, and you were the guy, you know, the hip-hop guy, you know, blaring your beatbox, and I was like, what is it, do you know what I mean? And Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I wonder, like, did you... Because that was what, Slam was like very revolutionary. I look back now with incredible admiration because it was revolutionary. It was hip-hop merging with basketball, so it was these cultural mergings. And you guys sort of ingratiated yourselves to the players. You weren't there to rip players. You were there to celebrate players. And I wondered, because you, just like me, we had the same background coming up through a a pretty classically trained journalism program. If you had any conflict at first, or if you sort of wondered about that, or did you just dive in and you just saw it as something, a new way of approaching the, the, the task? I mean, I think I dove in because
1: at that point, you know, that was my entry into sort of a national publication and that level of things. Um, I think I've told this before, but I first found Slam when I was still at Delaware. I found the, the first issue, so this would have been in 94, um, at a grocery store, like in Christiana or something. I don't even mm-hmm. remember where in Delaware. Um, but like grocery shopping at two in the morning, you know, like randomly, like just out. Cause I was not able to sleep or whatever. And reading through it, it was like, Oh, this is a bunch of things that, you know, I'm into, I'm obviously into basketball. I'm obviously into hip hop. I'm into sneakers. Like, you know, this is all speaking to what I'm doing. Um, so I proceeded then to harass Tony Gervino and Dave Harris, the then editors, um, via fax with like tons <laughs> of pitches and like, and whatever, we're in Delaware. So it's like, you know, I, I don't have access to NBA guys. I mean, yeah, I could go to Philly, but you know, you Russ, that's probably was not to get that was an insult to Spencer Dunkley. <laughs>
0: Spencer Dunkley is angry somewhere, right? There now. was Spencer Dunkley. There was,
1: and I don't remember if he ever got written up in Slam. Probably not, unfortunately. No. But he was drafted by the Pacers, right? Fifty yes. fourth overall, or something. Oh my God! 51st? Get a life, first Ross. Get a life. Somewhere around. Somewhere correct. around there. Yeah, that is. Was right. it fifty fourth? Wow, I think it was
0: fifty fourth, second round, by the Pacers. Yeah. Amazing,
1: um, but it's funny too because you talk about you know you being more of the traditional guy, and it's like, or I mean, Sports Illustrated being the more traditional sports writing thing, but. You know, you kind of went more of the traditional route, period. I mean, starting at the Tennessean and Uh doing internships and everything else. And it's like, you know, I was kind of the, um, and I guess I still am to a degree, you know, it's like the ant and the grasshopper or whatever, like the ant putting stuff away and the grasshopper just being like, whatever. And, you know, that's how it kind of ended up turning out. I mean, straight out of college, I was working for a weekly paper with a circulation of 1200 in Oxford, Pennsylvania, that the three editorial employees were basically a husband and wife team. I believe the husband maybe had gone to Delaware. I think that was maybe where the connection was and me, (laughs) you know, so it's like, I'm covering like high school sports. I had to drive to like the state police barracks to like pick up the police reports for that week and stuff like, you know, very traditional, very basic journalismy stuff. But at the same time, very, very, very like, you know, family entry level type stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so slam was kind of my entry into writing sarcastic stuff, which I mean was kind of in my wheelhouse even from the beginning um you know, and being able to you know write things without having to necessarily be on site for it um I don't know but to get back to I think where your original question was, like even dealing with players and stuff, like dealing with players and once you would tell them you were from slam that It sort of made things different. You know, I feel like especially when you were at SI, you know, you're coming off of and that was around the same time with Jordan playing baseball. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this would have been around that time. So it's like you bring up SI and I feel like there would be sort of, a, you know, obviously people want to be in Sports Illustrated, but there's still like some modicum of caution where it's like, oh, man. Right. And with us, it was more like, oh, man do stuff like we want to be on the cover like looking looking mean and stuff so um you know that did help build up
0: relationships over the years that you know some of which still exist right do do you um did you have a moment like did you have a sort of welcome to covering the nba moment or a guy who you sort of viewed early on in your time at slam as like this is a guy i can kind of hang on to, a uh, sort of an athlete who you attach, not attach yourself to sort of literally, but someone who you kind of saw as maybe a, an entrance way into the world of, of covering hoops.
1: I guess to a degree, you know, like what made it easier for us and for me, um, you know, we would primarily go to Knicks and Nets games when we weren't traveling and, uh, you know, guys would get used to seeing you. And since you're not a beat writer, And in the mid 90s, it's not like we were writing up, you know, random stuff online either. Um, You know, you could afford to go and either just talk to random guys and not even, you know, with no real plan. Mm -hmm. You know, you weren't you weren't writing a gamer. You weren't asking for stuff on somebody else. Um, You were actually having legit conversations instead of being like, hey, talk about the fourth quarter and then moving on to the next guy. Right. Right. You know, for me, I guess specifically, like that class of 96, which sort of coincided with my getting to be full time at Slam. I mean, that was those guys were part of it. You know, Jermaine O'Neal, I remember talking to him like at um, Hoop Summit, which I think was in Charlotte that year in 96, and talking to him about like, whatever, great uh test scores right. to go into college and me being like, oh, well, you could go to junior college. And it's like, you know, a couple months later, he's a borderline lottery pick and is in the NBA. Um, so I would make a point to talk to him when he came to town. Um, you know, Kobe was another guy where I met him. Like, I think I was like 25. He was like 17. And he sort of seemed like the older guy. Right. Um, <laughs> he was very polished already. Um, you know, but guys like that, who especially who we at slam covered in high school, you know, you kind of had a easier time dealing with them once they made the NBA, Um, you know, especially because once they made an NBA team, all of a sudden they're dealing with NBA writers who probably hadn't met them before, right? You know, so we kind of had the edge when it came to that. And I think, you know, to skip way ahead, that obviously helped us a ton when it came to LeBron. You right. know Ryan Jones, who was at Slam then and doing a lot of the high school stuff. He went down and did a story on LeBron when he was a sophomore. Um, you know, and, and same thing. That's something that you know established that Slam relationship with him early on that still exists.
0: Wasn't? Am I wrong in this that LeBron was wearing a Slam headband on one of the covers? Yeah, he was. He was, and <laughs> That's he, amazing.
1: he 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 actually did that on his own. I think they were from uh, K1X. That German hoop brand, sneaker brand, right? Um, and apparel or whatever, and they did them for us. We had tons of them in like different colors, and I think LeBron had gotten it from somewhere else. Like I don't, I, I, I wasn't at that shoot, but I don't think that was something that we like, you know, said like, "Hey, you need to wear this," right? That's that was just something
0: he did. Were you aware? Um, because I heard this a lot, and I think people knew we were friends, and I would hear this a lot were you aware that a lot of the mainstream media did not like you guys and kind of resented your presence to a certain degree?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, over the years I feel like, and, and obviously Twitter helped this to a degree, but, um, and being around long enough, you know, eventually you get to be friends with other guys and people who cover it from a more traditional sense. Um, But yeah. and, And I mean, I think we were aware of it pretty early on, you know, like I said, we didn't want to uh, monopolize time with guys. If we knew we weren't like doing anything, you know, on deadline or whatever. Um, I mean, I do remember times there was one game Lang, Rashid Wallace, like would never talk pregame and Lang Whitaker, who was another slam guy went up to him before and was like, Hey, I want to ask you some stuff for a feature. And he's like, yeah, I got you after the game. And after the game, I forget, whether he was playing for Detroit at that point. I think he was, maybe he was even still in Portland. But everyone crowds around him. And Rashid's like, I'm only talking to him. <laughs> and literally, like, beat writers were asking questions about the game. And he was just like, no, you. You keep. And Lang was working on, like, a bigger feature on him. And I think he said, when I talked to him about it, at some point, he actually asked Rashid a few questions just about the game so the beat writers could get their answers and leave. Wow, You know, like, so – I mean, I think – I don't know. I think that resentment maybe was based on, A, us being, like, kind of newer, you know, and obviously us being a little more casual about things in some regards. Right. Um, And maybe some of it was, like, just a relationship we would have with some of these guys. You know, it's like – because we're not, like, looking for stuff to drag out or, you know, do, like – not gotcha type stuff, but you know, we don't, we don't, we didn't have to stick to the same, I don't
0: know, rules as everyone else. Did you, were you at all? Cause I remember speaking for myself as a young journalist covering major league baseball. I think there was definitely a part of me that wanted these guys to like me. And I wonder as a young guy covering basketball, if you had that at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, there definitely is. There definitely is. And like, You know, and I think players know it too. It's like, if they remember your name, you know, and you have like some sort of a brief discussion or a conversation or whatever, you're going to remember that, you know, I mean, especially with older guys. I mean, I remember like, you know, when Sean Kemp was hanging on and on the magic and like, you know, going in and just talking to him about whatever. And it's like, Oh man, like that was Sean Kemp. Like I remember watching him in the dunk contest on TV or like, you know, Dominique Wilkins, like certainly the veterans at that point. Um, but at the same time, you know, you kind of made a point to do it with younger guys too. Um, to me, what was funny, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you probably experienced this sometimes too, where it's like there'd be guys you had a decent relationship with and you could have a conversation with them and talk about random stuff and whatever, whatever. And then you take out the recorder and ask him a question about something that's clearly like you know for publication or whatever. And they become kind of a different person. Yeah, because they're, they're so used to dealing with it. Like, I guess, I mean, whatever, it doesn't matter. So one day I was talking to Antoine Walker and we're talking about random stuff. I forget what. And same thing. I'm like, Tuan, I, I need to talk to you about whatever it was. And like instantly he goes from being this personable, you know, eye contact guy to like just kind of staring off into the distance and giving you whatever this answer is. And you're just like, all right, cool. Like right. that. that's, you know. That's fine. That's really that's all I really needed anyway. But it's like you kinda wish that, oh man, I wish like the conversational tone
0: could have continued into that. Yeah, that's a tricky thing actually in writing. It is tricky. And whatever. You
1: know, at the same time, obviously like Rashid or, you know, Kevin Garnett would never talk before games. And it's like you know, we wouldn't even have a conversation. Like, he would come in sometimes and he'd see me and, like, nod or, like, punch me in the chest or something. But, right. you know, it's not like he would break his own rules for us or whatever. Actually, Howard
0: Beck, I asked him, uh, or we talked about this. He said Kevin Garnett was the most difficult um, player he covered in his career. Did you – you guys had a lot of – you guys had a lot – I still remember KG and uh, Showbiz on the cover of yeah, Marbury. Yeah, yeah, Did you? How did you find Garnett? KG
1: Kid... – Kevin was definitely his own guy. You know, it's like he would be, he wouldn't talk pregame. I mean, that was, that was just like the way it was. Like, you know, you just sort of accepted that. And he would generally be the last guy out um, because he was one of those guys who would want to get fully dressed in the suit, you know, earrings, everything else before he would talk. And that was just something you put up with, right. Right. To deal with Kevin, you know, it's like, all right, that's going to happen. Our one-on-one stuff was always great. Like, I did the cover when – actually, I think I did two covers with him. I did one – um it was an orange cover. We I shot it that. at his house. Um, we that was a great shot...
0: cover. I remember that cover vividly. It was a Well, the funny cover. thing is
1: we shot – Jonathan Mannion shot it, and we shot it against a gold backdrop that was hung on his garage door because the yeah. cover was supposed to be gold. And I think – I don't remember if it was a case of the light really got messed up, so – you know, the, it looked white in parts, or if the letters just didn't read on it. So we ended up switching it to orange. But I mean, Jonathan and I spent like the whole day at his house in Minnesota. And at that point, Jonathan had already shot like the Reasonable Doubt cover, he shot DMX covers, he'd shot, you know, you name yeah. it, he shot so many like iconic hip hop images. So when he showed Kevin his book of what he had previously shot, like, KG was fanning out. right? You know, like, KG was like, oh, my God, like, you shot DMX, and I think, if I remember, you know, this is another one, Jonathan was like, oh, I can, you know, you want to talk to him? Like, I can call him for you. He's <laughs> like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, you know, so I think with stuff like that, um, he did the 10th anniversary or the, I think it was the 10th 5th anniversary cover for us, uh-huh. where he was, like, holding a ball. Um, so we would have conversations where, they would kind of stem from the previous conversation. Right. Um, Kevin obviously remains like this, like with his show, whatever, but he comes up with some of the most out of left field metaphors like you've ever heard. And it's just like, that stuff's priceless because from a lot of guys, you do get just really standard boilerplate, like, you know, both teams played hard. So um, if someone is going to give you real things, that's great. Um, the best conversation though, I probably had with him when we did a kicks cover for Adidas and it was him, Tim Duncan and Tracy McGrady on the cover. Uh And I ended up sitting down and just sort of moderating a conversation with the three of them. And like, as good as it is to talk to Kevin or, I mean, even Tim too, in this particular instance, like. Those guys are so much more engaging when they're talking to each other, right? which makes sense. You know, it's like you're talking to your peers and it's like, I'm sure all of us have heard ridiculous locker room conversations that we could never, ever share, um, or at least would never, ever share that, you know, blew away anything we actually got out of interviews. But in this case, you know, it was something like um, they were both talking about Tracy, Tim and Kevin, and Kevin was like, you're not even, you're not 6'9", you're like 6'10", or 6'11". And I'm like, oh, does that mean you're like seven feet, seven one? And I know Kevin's always like super sensitive about not wanting to be listed at seven feet. Uh-huh. And he's like, wait, how do we get to me? You know, and it's like, and you just get these guys making fun of each other. And, and that was amazing. But, right. you know, at the same token, I can imagine if you're working on deadline and you're waiting for Kevin to come out of that back room and you need him because he's the best player on the team. I'm
0: sure that would be maddening. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at that cover now, and it's really funny because I was looking at a few, a few Slam covers the other day. And Slam covers are basically a hit or miss of NBA coverage. So, <laughs> so the Kevin Garnett covers. Kevin Garnett's the main guy in the cover, so that's great, right? Then it's Corey Maggette, miss, kind of miss. Elton yeah. Brand, hit. Antonio McDyess, eh. Uh, yeah. Eric Barkley, huge miss. Sharifa Burrahim, wow. hit. So it's like, you just it's really a fun... I think Slam, I look back at Slam... And again, like at the time, there was a part of me as a traditional journalist that was like, uh, I don't know. You know, I don't I do know. And looking back now, you know, I do work for Bleacher Report. And I feel like a lot of what Bleacher Report does is, like everyone thinks they're being original and new. But I think Slam actually was original and new. And I think the merging of hip-hop, of culture, of basketball was this really revolutionary idea. And I wonder, what I want to ask you is, I remember I did a story on Slam for, for Newsweek maybe a decade and a half ago. I don't know if you remember this. And, um, I think I remember that. I yeah. remember the – new wait, Newsday. on uh, Newsday, excuse me, not Newsday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and um, I remember a lot of people were like, whoa. So there's – like, surprised that you guys were a bunch of white guys from the suburbs. And because a lot of you were, you know? Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah, just, yeah, you were guys who loved basketball. And because I think oftentimes – Um, there's a tendency for some white reporters to look at African American athletes and think like, Oh, I don't know if I can relate with them. And, and I really think like, number one, I think it's a bullshit idea. And I think like, I just think the love of basketball and maybe you disagree. I don't, I think your love of basketball and your passion for the game and your interest in the players and a willing willingness to speak sort of on their plateau, um, took you a long, long way. Yeah, I think that helped a lot. I think our ages
1: helped to a degree. Yeah, Um, you know, I think us kind of being interested in some of the same things probably helped. Um, But you know what? I mean, I think it also helped that at that point, like we weren't very progressive necessarily in our, you know, outside of Scoop Jackson, who is still writing for ESPN and like was obviously the voice of Slam for a while. Right. Um, but also like you know a lot of the beat writers at that point were middle-aged white guys right you know so they were even way more out of touch than we were so you know by kind of by comparison we couldn't help but be um you know way more accessible or, or way more um you know on their level right i think now the field has certainly leveled to the point you know where there's a lot of guys like us. I mean, the guys like we were then are now writing for whether it's Bleacher Report or Ball Don't Lie or um, or Complex. Right. That's interesting. You know, or, or Sports Illustrated. Right. I mean, doing a lot of your web coverage, you know, it's like, you know, I look at someone like a, an Arash Marchese who was at Slam for a while or Jarrell Harris. Like, you know, these guys are are on the ground too.
0: Right. Um. I'm a, I don't know if you feel this way. I am i I've had, I've probably had this conversation a million times now, but I am confused by journalism. I actually read, I read an interview with you the other day and you were talking about how stuff in print, like the pig, you would go through the NBA uh, photo archives and to see it in a magazine, it just felt more real. And you guys used to do trash talk on the opening pages of the magazine, which this is, it was brilliant, blistering stuff about players, about celebrities. And now it's Twitter, but it's not quite the same. And I and I wonder, like for you, if some of the magic—I hate to sound like two old codgers—but if some of the magic has kind of faded a little bit from what we do.
1: Yeah, I think it has. I think it has. I mean, there, there, there's obviously a trade-off. You know, it's like back then it was like, and you can attest to this too. And SI was even, although SI was on a more frequent. Um, Publishing schedule, but, you know, with slam, it's like, man, you'd start reporting a story. You'd edit it like three times in word and then edit it, read through it. Like I think three people would read through it each time and it would go through three rounds of editing in layout. right? And then you'd look at, you know, mock-ups or whatever, when it came in, and then you're waiting like a month for the issue to hit the stance. So obviously you have a lot invested in it, um, but at the same time, like you're not getting feedback on stuff you wrote until literally months afterwards. Right. Or, um, you know, I remember doing cover shoots or whatever, and then praying that the guy doesn't get hurt or get traded. Um, Did that happen? Did that ever so happen? Long. Guys, I think there were probably guys who got hurt. I don't right. think anyone got traded before a cover went out. Um, I know there was one point we did a uh, a Jason Williams and Chris Webber cover on the Kings, and that was initially supposed to be an East West split with Stefan Marbury and Keith Van Horn in the East, and the Nets just came out of the gate horrible. They were like one in ten or something. It's like no, we can't. We just can't do a cover like that's absurd. Right. So, you know, Jay Will and and C Web got nationwide. Um, but yeah, I mean back to the original question, like everything now does seem a lot more disposable. You know, it's like, I feel like every site out there is, you know, trying to do something on everything. Every site is trying to be everything at this point, whether it's like, you know, kind of covering culture and sports and whatever else. Um, And then you're trying to, you know, get a hit every day. And you obviously can't do that by just doing one big thing necessarily. So you're doing a bunch of things. And, then the next day, there's the bunch of things. You know, it's it's almost the newspaper every day. Right. And then Twitter obviously is that much more disposable. I mean, you're just throwing stuff out there, which is why, you know, I think it's hilarious. And someone pointed it out today. I think, um, you know, when someone's like, "Oh, that tweet was terrible," it's like, "What?" That's like tell- <laughs> that's like telling me my last breath was wrong. Like, right. There's gonna be another one in like two <laughs> seconds. Like, relax. <laughs> Everyone's just workshopping. You yeah. know, it's like everyone can't be a professional, like, comedian or reporter or whatever else on there.
0: Right. Um, and you know what's sad, Russ, is... Um, I don't know how you feel about this, but I think it's pretty evident, is the two places where we sort of made our name, Slam and SI. I mean, uh, SI just announced they might be going to 24 issues next year. I saw that, yeah. And yeah. Slam yeah. also is a print entity. You just... Slam used to be ubiquitous. And you don't see it that much anymore, you know? And I, I just... You just, it is what it is, right? I mean, is that all? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, and Slam still has like obviously a big online presence and it's, you know, it's, it's crazy to me, like, and not to, you know, not in any way to belittle what those guys are doing over there now. And like, you know, I still, I still follow it. I still write things for it occasionally. Um, But like, it's crazy to hear like from people our age or from people a little younger kind of what Slam meant to them in the 90s. Right. You know, and it's like, that makes me feel ancient in a way, but it also makes me, it does make me proud because it's like, oh, you know, yeah, that stuff did matter. Like people were super into it. There were people in like middle America or wherever, you know, now obviously that stuff matters less and less because of the internet. But, you know, back in 95, 96, 97, it's like getting that issue in the mail actually mattered. Right. You know, and, and I know SI was the same way. I mean, I I feel like, I don't know, it was funny like watching when you were there and like seeing some of the stuff you went through, whether it be you know, the John Rocker piece or um, you know, some of that baseball stuff is like you wanted to be like the next I don't know. Right. You know, don't ask or, or Gary Smith. Right, right, or yeah. Gary Smith or you know, yeah. Like and then all of a sudden like that sort of wasn't possible anymore.
0: Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. And not
1: that it's not, I mean the guys who obviously the guys there SL Price and Lee Jenkins and yeah, Ver- Wertheim's uh, still there, right? I mean, yeah. they're all still killing it, and it's like you read their stuff, and like Chris Ballard, you know, and you're just like, damn, like they're great. I want to read, read more stuff like this, A and B, like, why am I still writing? But, um, <laughs> you know, there is still that level of writing out there, it just gets caught in like lots of noise, lots of noise, lots of noise. and it's and it's and it's kind of sad, like, now it's like, you know, because. Back then, like, I mean, slam wasn't as much slam was like the upstart kind of fighting against every or not fighting against, but like, you know, finding its place. But like Sports Illustrated was an institution. Time was an institution. I mean, you had all these magazines that were just like, you know, these bright, shining beacons that like if you're a young writer, like, all right, I'm going to get there someday. Right. And I always give you credit for how early you got to SI. I mean, you wanted to work at SI and you got to SI when you were young. Yeah. and now it's like you look at stuff like MTV News, you know, when Grantland went down, and Grantland was another one. They sort of hired all their writers and editors, and that it lasted like less than a year. Yep. You know, it's a, or a year. I'm might, I'm not might even sure. Maybe my timing's wrong. Or Fox just deciding like, yeah, we're not doing writing anymore.
0: We're just going digital. We're just gonna go digital.
1: Yeah, it was. It's video. It's all yeah, video. It's
0: and like that's fine, but
1: you know, you don't have those like platforms existing to where you know a a young guy growing up can be like i'm gonna write for them someday right because it's like they're not gonna they might not be there and even though some will be there when the others go away you're like wait so is this gonna be here right i don't know it's 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 just an interesting world i can't imagine what it would be like coming out of college now
0: you were just like the way you said that's fine about fox going all video is like someone's stepping in a big bowl of shit and saying (laughs) it's fine (laughs) look it's fine it's just shit it's okay
1: i mean look dude let you know i don't want oh god you're right
0: no no russ you're actually it isn't fine i mean it's fine in that they have the right to do what they want but the idea that this is what you know you and i love writing and we love reading good writing and we love journalism and i get that not everyone does but it doesn't make it less painful
1: no, and that's the thing, like you want to tweak stuff, you know, you want to get that good turn of phrase where like, and I mean whatever, you you you're not supposed to be like, you know, super nerded out about that. And obviously some of those sentences you're most proud of are the ones you end up killing because mm-hmm. it's like, well, this is stupid. But you know, you don't want to see the the whole sports like journalism world become like a hot take machine, you know? Yes. You, you you don't want the the witlocks and the skip and the to win. And it's like I think people pay a lot of lip service towards everything else, but the money keeps funneling up kind of towards that though. That's the stable thing right now. Yeah. That's where, that's where a lot of the money is going. And it's like, damn, when you see someone like, you know, a professional yeller making more money than probably the entire writing staff of a publication combined, it's like,
0: I know what are, what are we all doing? I don't know. That's a great question. Um, let me ask you a question. you are uh, I would say there are two covers. That, uh, no, there are three covers from Slam that really stand out to me. I want to ask you about one of them, but I'll reference all three. Number one is we were roommates, and there was a Kobe Bryant cover where you guys, forget, you guys forgot to, to uh, Photoshop a big zit on his forehead. I don't know if you remember <laughs> that. But I always remember getting it and being like, he has a white head. Um, <laughs> number two was New Jersey Nets, champs by 2001. Count on it. And it was hey, – Yeah, yeah, yeah. With with Kittles, Van Horn, Kendall Gill, Jason Williams, and uh, Sam Cassell, which actually was a pretty good five. Um, And then the one that I I love, and I I would say it's probably the slam's most iconic cover, is issue number 32, which is Allen Iverson with his hair blown out. And um, I know you were not at the cover shoot, but correct me if I'm wrong. New York City, you drove around in a limo with him.
1: Yes. What do you remember from it? So he was, that was a day when Iverson Q Gaskins who's this guy at Reebok um, who has some amazing Iverson stories himself I may add mm-hmm. um, and I, it was a fairly small group there weren't that many other. I don't think maybe there was one or two other people um, driving around a limo in New York City starting in the morning which seemed like a very un alan Iverson time still does but, right, yeah, right. Um, and I think he needed he was going to like modell's offices which i believe were in the woolworth building downtown Mm -hmm. to like talk to you know whether it was store managers or whoever else I, i guess it was on behalf of reebok at that point um we also had to stop in the diamond district because one of his enormous like platinum and diamond bracelets had broken and i forget whether it had broken at the bet awards or he needed it fixed to go to the BET Awards. But I definitely remember thinking with, like, holding that thing and being like, yeah, this is, like, probably, I don't even know how many, a decade of salary, maybe more, I, a lot. Meanwhile, Russ is um, wearing
0: his Swatch watch.
1: <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably so. Um, and then we drove from the city to Teterboro, because he had to fly somewhere. And someone else was supposed to interview him that day, and they were getting on the plane with him to go wherever it was they were going. And I got a car service back from Teterboro to the city. He was, he was good. Like that, that was one of the first times I think I had actually really talked to him. Um, You know, short of maybe saying what's up at games or like asking him, you know, a question in a scrum. Um, The, the, the thing that stands out the most still, and it kind of, stayed with me was asking him like if he could be any other player in the league who would he be and you know he didn't he didn't say Jordan I guess Jordan might have been retired he was retired at that point but um he said Spreewell. wow weird and it was like man of all the guys you could pick you know it's like he's not even really an all-star but you know I think it was just attitude at that point and you know Iverson at that point you know that cover I think is probably one of the most iconic images of Iverson there is. Oh, yeah. Um, But he hadn't even been an all-star at that point. Oh, weird. Because he he wasn't an all-star as a rookie. You know, he played in the rookie game. Um, The next year, I believe, there wasn't an all-star game. I think that's when it was canceled. Right. Because of the lockout. You know, and then this was 99. That was that same year. Um, You know, so all that, all those successes were still coming you know, the all-star games, the MVP, the scoring titles, like, um, you know, he was still, he was an icon already. I want to say, but, you know, he was still trying to make it right. Um, you know, I, I was asking him questions about playing point guard. Cause none of that was really established yet. And Like, um, you know, I think he was just a very open dude. I, I think he still is, you know, I talked to him not that long ago and, uh, you know, he's, he's very open about stuff to the point of, you're like, wait, you're actually really saying this? Right. Um, and the cover shoot, you know, Tony was at the cover shoot and I remember hearing, I think he was like eight hours late. It, it was some absurd <laughs> amount of time.
0: That's fantastic. S-
1: someone else was shooting him at the same time. So we actually hired like his, the girl who did his hair to take out his braids and blow it out and then to put his braids back in. Wow. because we didn't want him to go to the next shoot with the braids out because then you know we'd lose what we were doing um obviously it's crazy because like something like that now would never work someone would post it on instagram and you'd be screwed right oh. you know that I, I still don't understand how stuff like that happens now how you could get a cover that would be like a secret or
0: someone in a look that's different you know now it's like everything leaks you know one thing that um Used to drive me crazy as a writer, especially as a young writer. I feel like now I would not accept it, whatever that means. But the sense of either entitlement or indifference to other people's time like, imagine being eight hours late for anything. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) oh yeah, I got this. I'm doing, I'm interviewing Russ on my podcast. It was supposed to start at six, but it's four in the morning. And here I, like, are you up? It's unbelievable the stuff that athletes will put people through. It's like, it's out your word. That has to be the worst from uh, Slam uh, Lore, right? Eight hours for Iverson. Yeah,
1: I think that was the longest. And, and that, that might be exaggerated. I don't know. You should talk to Tony or I yeah. should double check with him. But I mean, there were, there were ones with him that we would miss. We missed entire shoots with him. I remember going with Clay Patrick McBride, another fantastic photographer, to Philly because they had told us, like, okay, you know, Alan's not going to practice. I know, shocking. But, you know, he'll do this shoot afterwards. So, we set everything up in a spare room, like, and it's all the lights and it, we're doing test shots. And like, usually one of us would wind up being like, you know, the person for the test shots. I think I still have Polaroids somewhere, not from that shoot, but from right. other shoots, get everything done, practice ends, you know, and I go out to find the, the Sixers PR person to be like, Hey, you know, we're ready. And she comes back after a while. I was like, Oh yeah, Alan left. <laughs> like what? Like, can we get him back? And we never did. Like, he didn't come back. Like, he just left. He went home. And, you know, we had driven to Philly from New York just to do this photo shoot. So we had to turn around and drive back with nothing. And, like, you know, Clay, I guess, had also shot the Afro cover. But, you know, I remember kind of even on that shoot trying to talk Clay off the ledge, being like, dude, like, this just... It just happens. Like he just does stuff like this. Um, and like the kind of the postscript to it was, they basically had to stop him in. Um, I don't even remember. I guess it it wasn't the spectrum then, whatever it was called. Yeah. That arena the new arena has gone through like nine different names, but they basically had to grab him while he was walking from the locker room to the court and pull him off into a side room. And we shot like, I think it's literally six frames for a cover. Yeah. And the amazing part is, and this is why, like, you kind of put up with what Alan was doing back then. I swear to God, every one of those six frames could have been a cover. And every one of those six frames was different. Right. But, like, they were all great. And, like, meanwhile, we would have shoots with other guys where, like, you would go through, like, ten contact sheets and be like, oh, man. We right. did a shoot for, like, three hours, and I don't know if we have anything. Right. Right. That's funny, you know. I, I, and but Allen was like, it was just perfect. Actually, a, a brief aside: this has nothing to do with Allen Iverson. But speaking about cover shoots, so Atiba Jefferson, who shoots skateboarding primarily or shot skateboarding primarily, and has since become like a pretty well-known basketball photographer. He's done he's done work for Adidas. He's done a lot of stuff for Slam. Uh-huh. Um, one of the first covers he shot was Steve Francis. I wrote the story. We shot him in California. Shot him on an outdoor court, on the water. He was rapping to us. He shot him, like, doing crossovers and stuff. Amazing photo shoot. So, Atiba sends the shoot in an, I think it was an inside-out box, taped flat. You can only imagine. Yeah. Got thrown out. Oh. Someone threw out the entire shoot. And this was, like, film. So it's like, I think he had like one or two frames from it. Like we ended up using something inside, but we had to go shoot Steve again. I think we shot him on an outdoor court in Maryland. Someone else did the shoot. But yeah, I think in my time at Slam, that's the only actual cover shoot I remember being actually thrown in the garbage
0: yeah that's pretty good. Uh,
1: yeah that, that that did not that was not a
0: fun couple of days i actually remember i just thought of john wertheim when he did a story on francis for si and i remember him telling me like he shows up and you know who i don't know how francis is going to be and francis is like it's at his house and he's like hey who wants to go swimming i got some extra trunks if any of you guys want to come swimming <laughs> he was like the mic the nicest guy so um but i want to you know i was thinking um i was thinking when I think of Slam from your era, I think Iverson, I think Marbury, I think Arnett. But the one guy I also think of is Sean Bradley. Because <laughs> you guys used to beat the shit out of Sean oh Bradley. My he God. was a staple of what you guys did as far as trash talk, as far as mocking him, Slam of the month. Um, well, I'll, t- I'll tell
1: you this. The, the first... Thing I ever had published in Slam was something on Sean Bradley being like basically a prop in the dunk contest and getting dunked on all the time. (laughs) Um, it ran in it was one of the issues in 1995. It was Michael Jordan on the cover, it was when he first came back. It's Mm -hmm. him like yelling from the bench. Um, I wrote it for Hype, which was the upfront section. Yeah, um, I probably it was probably assigned at like 500 words, I probably turned it in at like 800. Mm -hmm. And I think it ran at like a hundred. Like I remember looking for it and eventually finding like this little postage stamp sized block of text with a horizontal photo of Sean Bradley laying on the court. And like most of my, what I at the time probably thought was brilliant writing had been cut down drastically to this little tiny thing, which was probably for the best. I have no idea where the original text of that is. Um, but yeah, so that kind of started off, you know, that's Sh- Sean Bradley and I started in Slam around the same time. Um, the first thing I went to for Slam was Sixers training camp when they held it at the University of Delaware, which you might remember. Yeah, I do. I don't know if you were still there or not. I remember that. Um, Jerry Stackhouse was a rookie. I distinctly remember Jerry Stackhouse unwrapping his hand because he had a, I think he had a broken thumb or a fractured thumb. And as he unwrapped the bandage from his hand, his bank book fell out. And I did have brief thoughts about man, I should just grab that and take yeah, off. Seriously. But I don't think that would have helped me very much. Um, but during that training camp, Sean Bradley was like going back up court and kind of stumbled as he went over uh mid court. And people just started like booing and laughing at him. And I'm just like, yeah, this isn't gonna end well. Like yeah. Sean Bradley is like and I, I feel like I don't know. We definitely used him as a punchline literally all the time. He became the punchline during the lockout. We ran a photo of him golfing. Like, I think it was the poster. I remember that. It was was last shot. Like, I think we ran it everywhere. Um, I actually did interview him once. It was at, (laughs) I think it was at that, what's that off-brand polo brand? Like, a US Polo Club or one Uh, of those things. They had like offices in the Empire State Building. And I think I talked to Sean Bradley there. And I'm sure I brought, I mean, I'm, he knew, he knew who Slam was. Right. You know, he was very congenial. And I think like, even if you look back at his career, like, I feel like, I feel like we can reassess his career to some degree. You know, I, he was pretty successful. He played a long time. Oh, yeah. And it's, and especially for someone who was as tall as he is and like looking at some of these other guys who like, you know, wind up flaming out or getting injured. Like, he he stayed with it for a while. He and he made a decent amount of money doing it.
0: Look, he was the number um, two pick in the draft, which didn't help him. He was he picked was ahead two, yeah. of Penny, I think. Um, yeah. He,
1: well, he was. Yeah, he was between Penny and Weber. Right. You know, he went to the Sixers when they were bad, such a trash fire. Right. Um, you know, he had been on his Mormon mission. Yeah. So it's like he hadn't played basketball in a while. I think. You know, people, I remember seeing, like, footage of him playing baseball, basically. Like, he played baseball in high school. I think he was actually pretty good. Um, I don't know. There were Yeah, there's expectations of you when you're the number two overall pick. And, like, and when you get dunked on by literally every great dunker of a generation, like, and especially for Slam, who which was built on, you know, photos. And, obviously, guys getting dunked on was a big part of that. Yeah, Sean kind of didn't really stand a chance.
0: Right. Right now, somewhere, Sean, Sean is getting dunked on. <laughs> um, let me ask you, you, um, you were the editor of Slam from 99 to 2004. You are currently a complex, and your sort of focus is on sneakers. And I say this to you as a guy who literally just went to the gym about two hours ago in a pair of $5 sneakers I bought at um, Payless. Amazing. Who, I um, that. why do people give a shit? Like, why sneakers? Like, It seems like it's like that line from uh, Goodwill Hunting where she's like, We can get a cup of coffee. And he said, well, why don't we just get cashews? It's just as arbitrary. Like, why (laughs) sneakers? Why not socks? Why not baseball hats? Why not cashews? Like, what is it about sneakers that does it for people? I mean, I think the
1: easy answer and I think the, you know, it's kind of, I don't know if it's obvious, but, you know, I think Michael Jordan obviously had a lot to do with all of this. You know, it's like, I think you can trace the beginnings of a lot of things back to Jordan. I mean, even slam to a degree, you know, mm-hmm. it's like that crossover of basketball and hip hop and like what Spike Lee's ad campaigns with Jordan did to sort of make sneakers like this amazingly cool thing. Right. And it's funny because I know like guys like Bobito Garcia, you know, his book uh, where'd you get those ends in like 86 or 87 and for him. Air Jordan was kind of the end of sneakers where it's like, it went from being this really cool, kind of underground, very basketball-connected thing to more of a, a widespread pop culture phenomenon with, like, this massive marketing behind it. Right. But for me, growing up in the suburbs, like, that really drove it for me. You know, that, that made it all the cooler. Like, I didn't have Air Jordan 1s when I was a kid because my parents weren't going to spend that kind of money, but, like, I definitely wanted them. Right. And my memory of, like, what came first, you know, was I a Michael Jordan fan or was I an Air Jordan fan? It was – Around the same time, you know, it, it's close. Um, and I guess I've there's just a lot of things to it. I'm actually doing sort of everything now, more so. I did start a complex with just sneakers, uh-huh. and now it's like I'll do sneakers, I'll do sports if you know, as we do that, I'll do some music stuff. Um, but I mean, I'm still into sneakers. I mean, I have a storage locker in Long Island that has a ton of a minute. My office is overcrowded, the apartments got you know. A, a fixed amount, but some of which change a lot. Um, you know, I think I do think to some degree, like, sneakers kind of become your car in New York. Right. Because, like, whatever, you don't have a car. What, what expresses, you know, something about you, whatever? It's like, oh, your shoes and keeping them clean and, like, making sure they're either the newest of the new or, like, something really obscure. Um, you know, and I think especially for if you're younger, it's definitely your car, no matter where you are. You know, that, that's your, that is your statement. And like, it's gone from, you know, someone like me, where it's like, you're looking at the kids in your homeroom class and being like, damn, you know, I wish I had what that kid has, or, you know, maybe a kid in your entire school. Now stuff like Instagram means like, you're trying to compete with the entire world, you know, which makes it impossible for starters, but at the same time, you can get. Validation from
0: people literally across the world just by posting the right shoe. Is that an indictment? The right shoe. Wait, Russ, is that an indictment of us as a people? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, isn't that a little weird? Like, I can get validation for my, like, isn't that kind of like, what the hell is wrong with us? You know what I mean? Like, what?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's become, it's kind of become so normal. I feel like if you do, you know, if you are someone who's not plugged into it at all, it definitely seems weird. And I think if you unplug yourself from it for a while, you know, maybe you get that sort of, you know, <laughs> you have to go through detox first, but, you know, eventually it comes to a point where you're like, man, what was I, what what am I doing? Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's like any other intoxicant, I suppose, where it's like, you can get caught up in it and it can be too much. Um, you know, is it going to stop or go away or peak? I, I, I don't know i've I've been saying sneakers have peaked for like the last like five years, and I'm finally admitting that like I'm probably wrong, like maybe not, right you know maybe they did already in some vague way, but um you know, whatever is the most popular thing is still massively
0: popular, right? Um, let me ask you a final question here when you uh, so when we first met and you were first at slam, i what I remember vividly is you loved Michael Jordan. Like I remember you <laughs> interviewing him and you loved Michael Jordan. I mean that and Nana, I'm not making fun of you. Like no, Michael no, 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 Jordan course, was the course. guy and you loved yep. Michael Jordan and the yep. chances you had to interview him were like gold. And yeah. Yeah. I covered I was at the I was at his Hall of Fame induction. Okay. And his okay. speech cemented to me that this guy just might be a gigantic douchebag of a human being. <laughs> I just remember it being so self-indulgent. And him bringing the guy there who, he beat, who beat him out for that. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I just thought, God, you're such an asshole. And I wonder, I'm not saying that's true. It's just my impression. Like, <laughs> that love you have. So, sometimes, you know, it's like the Wizard of Oz. You see the man behind the curtain. Like, um, do you still have the love for Jordan? I
1: mean, some of that is still there. Some of that's definitely still there. I mean, I, I think, like, you know, it was probably even tempered to a degree, even at that point. I mean... You know, because you would go from, like, obviously a lot of the early coverage of him would be pretty fawning or pretty, like, um, one-sided. You know, even even some of the SI stuff, you know, the old yeah, like, Curry, Kirkpatrick stuff or whatever. Um, and none, none of that really changed until the Jordan Rules came out. You know, and Sam Smith writes this book that gives you kind of this, you know, super way insidery look at, like, those early, late 80s, early 90s Bulls. And you're like, wait a minute. You know, this guy's a lunatic, right? But then, you know, obviously they come back and they win their six titles and he ends it with the shot against Utah and everything else. So, um, you know, I I think it's yes and no, you know, there's obviously still this sense of like, wow, this guy was something I'd never seen before. This is who I grew up with as the superstar. Um, is it to the point where I will never accept like someone being declared as good as he is? No, no. Because, you know, I even look at things that he had said where it's like, he's not who he is without Dr. J or, or uh, David Thompson. And to me, it's like, obviously Kobe isn't who Kobe is without Jordan. And LeBron isn't who LeBron is. You know, I think, I think every generation does build on um, the ones that came before, at the same time like jordan was kind of at the center of this perfect storm where it's like his rise coincided with the rise of you know even si like becoming what it did and mm-hmm. and nba on tv and the nba in general like it's all sort of inseparable um you know if jordan was if jordan the exact same person was a rookie now he's not going to become the guy or the the legend maybe that he was then you know maybe he's viewed more like kobe right because all your flaws are on display you know i think he was fortunate to have those first like i don't know six or seven years in the nba where it's like it was very controlled who got to him and and what
0: image was portrayed well that was very well said i have to agree he also Uh, came out it was also (laughs) you're a poet it was also uh (laughs) it was also perfect timing as far as um Sneakers are like you said, sneakers. Someone was ready to take sneakers to a certain level, someone was ready to take marketing to a certain level, you know. And he was the per if LeBron had come along in 1982, you know, two years before Jordan enters the league, right? Maybe it's him, you know, right? It was, it's a very right, no,
1: or, or you know, or if Kobe comes along then and like someone who's so polished and so like, you know, ready to sort of take on that mantle. Um, yeah, I don't know. And then Jordan begat you know, Shaq and all these other guys and Kobe and Tracy and whoever else. And like,
0: you know, obviously slam helped build some of those guys too. Yeah. Um, well, listen, Russ, again, I killed your snake and I'm sorry. It was me. <sighs>
1: Poor snake. He, uh... Hopefully, hopefully that tank is still on the roof of that apartment <laughs> building somewhere. But you know what's... We
0: left it. Wait, here's when I knew actually that you didn't really give a shit. So the truth of the matter is it was Russ me and his girlfriend at the time were, were all living there and Russ was gone and we were like, what do we do with this snake? And your your girlfriend, your ex, was like, I think we should save it for him just in case because I don't know. <laughs> so we put it in a plastic bag, the corpse of your snake and kept oh. it in the mailbox because it was a weekend. Oh, and so bad. That's a true story. And um, I remember you came back and you were like, why did you save the snake? And I was like, well, what was the snake's name? And you're like, I don't know. Like... <laughs> The fucking snake didn't even have a name, and I'm, like, concerned about your feelings. I mean,
1: it wasn't, it wasn't going to come when you called it. So, I mean, yeah. it wasn't super important. But right. Anyway, I do, I do respect your, uh, you know, worrying about my feelings yeah. with
0: the poor snake.
1: That's how I do, Russ.
0: Um, Russ, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. This has been an absolute joy for me, so thank you so much. Anytime, Jeff. Anytime. Thank Always you. Always fun. I want to thank today's guest, Russ Bankston, for joining me on Two Sling and Yang. You can follow Russ on Twitter at Russ Bankston and on Instagram also at Russ Bankston, both creative uh, names there. Uh, one can listen to Two Sling and Yang on both iTunes and on Bumpers.fm. Reviews are always appreciated. Uh, the music today might be great. Can't say this enough. Great MC Owl. Thank you again for joining me. Jeff Perlman on Two Riders and Yang. And remember, keep writing.